Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, December the 23rd. Got a good show lined up here today to kick off the back half of the program. I'm going to be chatting weather. Yeah, there may still be eight days left in 2019, but Environment Canada is out with its top 10 weather events of the year. Across the globe, we are seeing more and more extreme weather from intense heat waves to suffocating smoke and haze from wildfire to extreme flooding. It's raining sideways! The one weather event this year that really sticks out in my mind was in Quebec when they literally postponed Halloween into November due to the weather. To quote the list, 20 Quebec municipalities postponed trick-or-treating until the next day. Millions of children exchanged an evening of trick-or-treating in the rain for high winds, blowing them around in total darkness the following night after damaging winds accompanied plunging temperatures as the heavy precipitation came to an end. I am not sure if I've ever seen a holiday get moved like that in order to accommodate kids being outside. Now, of course, the reason that sticks out for me is, uh, you know, I am... Uh, that there were no significant issues when it came to like wildfires here in Kamloops area. You know, that's why this Quebec thing is just sort of one of the ones that really uh, is at the forefront in my mind is because it didn't feel like there were any major things that happened here locally. Now, yes, there was the, like, the Eagle Bluff fire that occurred over the summer, and, uh, you know, we did spend some time here at our station, you know, monitoring that situation and reporting on that, but it didn't quite have the same impact that fires have had in previous years with, you know, that smoke and the haze that we dealt with here uh, in the city where you couldn't even see, you know, a, a half a kilometer in front of you. So, you know, without any major weather events like that here, you know, that weird Quebec winter storm is just one of the many things that sticks out in my mind. So I'll be joined by Environment Canada's chief climatologist, David Phillips, to talk about that and a number of other incidents that have happened over the course of this year that I'm sure many of you will remember as well. To uh, end off today's show, I will be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Soloway to talk about employee burnout. I'm sure there are many out there just, uh, you know, feeling ready for a few days off here at Christmas time. But how badly are those days off needed? Well, I mean, if you're feeling like you have been working yourself to the bone, you may have been begging for a day or two to yourself. And if that's the case, well, that may not be the best thing for your health or your mental health, you know, sitting there begging for a day off. So signs of employee burnout could include exhaustion, uh, disengagement, absenteeism, a lack of motivation and productivity and irritability. You know, this could also lead to uh, job dissatisfaction and a lack of feelings of achievement. So, you know, just hearing that list makes it pretty easy to understand that it can have a significant impact on the workplace and not just for that one person, but, you know, what kind of trickle-down effect does that have? You know, other people seeing this person struggling with these issues in the office, uh, and then either, you know, they get upset that they aren't pulling their weight, you know, that could cause a rift within your staff, that could cause others to say, well, if he isn't doing his job, then maybe I will slack a little bit when it comes to my own duties. There are a number of concerns that employee burnout could cause, and as we look towards a new year, you know, I thought it might be a good time to not only look back and reflect on your own work habits and, and make sure that whatever you're doing, you know, can help you avoid feeling burnt out, but probably more importantly, as an employer, to make sure that you're taking care of your staff. So I'll be joined by Dr. Soloway at around the 50-minute mark of today's show to talk all about that and get you ready for a new work year in 
2020. And coming up next, it is my usual Monday morning guest here, Kyla Lee. We have a couple of interesting topics on our agenda here today. Uh, one is the issue of an RCMP constable, Sarah Beckett, who was killed by a drink driver on Vancouver Island over three years ago. Uh, she was deemed responsible for the crash. Well, late last week, ICBC apologized for suggesting it was somehow her fault uh, that she was struck and killed by someone who was impaired behind the wheel. So Sarah Beckett was in her police cruiser in Langford in April 2016 when a truck driven by Kenneth Fenton rammed into her, killing the 32-year-old mother of two. Fenton uh, pleaded guilty to impaired driving causing death and dangerous driving causing death. And last year, the Attorney General of Canada filed a civil claim against him for damages and expenses for the destruction of the police cruiser. So it looks like the situation was eventually sort of rectified, but nonetheless, a grieving family was forced to go through quite a bit of unnecessary harm as a result, Kyla and I will also uh, be discussing, on top of that issue, uh, a rather odd story that I came across uh, late last week. And quite frankly, I still don't uh, know how this could really happen. And I'm still sort of left wondering if this might somehow be a bit of a hoax. So apparently, a BC woman received an immediate roadside prohibition for being impaired, even though she was the passenger in the vehicle. Now, the story says the woman contacted her son to drive her home from a Christmas party after the woman and her husband had been drinking. The 22-year-old son has an N-license restriction, which means he is allowed to drive members of his immediate family in the car. He can also drive without supervision as long as he has no electronic devices, has consumed no alcohol or drugs, and displays that N sign on the car. So the officer assessed the driver and was satisfied that he was dead sober. Now, one argument that the officer had made with regards to giving this woman this roadside prohibition was that, uh, you know, she was sitting in the passenger seat and the officer felt that there was a risk she might reach over and grab the steering wheel and take control of the vehicle. Good one, Randy. Oh. Good one. Yeah, so uh, this mother was instructed to take a breath test, which she failed, as was expected. She then received a 90-day roadside suspension and the family sedan had been impounded for 30 days as a result. Now, one update to this story um, is that Nelson police have stated that the driver had an L license, not an N license, which means one qualified supervisor, 25 years of age or older, needs to be sitting beside the driver in the front seat. Well, I guess because his mother was intoxicated, she wasn't quote-unquote qualified, which I guess, I guess makes sense. But if you ask me, this is a, a case of a police officer caring more about making a statement than actually seeing someone get home safely. Uh, you know, if I, was, uh, if I was in his shoes, I would say, well, you know, you're doing a good thing by picking up your mom and dad from a Christmas party, taking them home, making sure they don't get behind the wheel, and, uh, you know, making sure they get home safely. So uh, not only for themselves, but, of course, all the other people on the road, as uh, was mentioned in the previous story, if, uh, if an intoxicated person is on the road, they're not just a danger to themselves, but they're a danger to all other people who are behind the wheel walking around, you know, I don't think I need to explain it. We know what impaired driving is and, and how serious of a problem it is. So Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee will be joining me here after the break to talk about those stories and more. So uh, stick around because it's going to be a good one. So thanks for tuning in and there'll be more after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on Monday, December the 23rd. Thanks so much for tuning in here with just two days left before the Christmas holiday. Hopefully you're all ready to go and you got all your, your errands done and your preparations in order so you're not panicking here in the next uh, day and a half because that's basically all we got left to get ready for the holidays. I am joined now on the line by uh, my usual Monday morning guest here, Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 
So, um, yeah, we had a couple of uh, things here on our agenda to discuss, and, and we'll start with the first one that I had mentioned here in my intro, and that was uh, Constable Sarah Beckett. So she, uh, you know, was killed in 2016 uh, on the island there when uh, she was hit by a drunk driver, and uh, she was initially deemed somehow responsible by ICBC for this collision, which resulted in her death. I mean, how how weird is that to see someone who, uh, you know, was was basically was killed in a collision, and, and somehow they're the ones being blamed? Is this something that you see pretty often from ICBC? Uh, CBC cases? This is unfortunately an incredibly common litigation tactic for ICBC. They will frequently, in any case, put the blame on the innocent victim of a collision to try to avoid paying out all of the money that they would otherwise be responsible for paying out uh, under the insurance claim um, to somebody who has been injured in a collision. What happened in this case is a lot more problematic because ICBC, although they will pay out the claim uh, to the Beckett family and to the RCA, MP uh, for the vehicle, they actually don't have to be on the hook for that money at the end of the day because her killer, Mr. Fenton, was convicted of criminal offenses and driving that caused her death. He's responsible for those costs, and ICBC gets to recover the costs from him. So there was no need for them to take this extreme litigation position in this case. So with that said, I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit odd then that they would go to the lengths that they did to, to almost blame the victim in this case when, when you know, the person who was responsible did, uh, you know, uh, plead guilty to, uh, you know, um, I can't remember the charges now off the top of my head. I have them written down. I mentioned them before, but uh, negligence causing death and, and uh, you know, impaired driving causing death, I believe, were the, the, the charges he pleaded guilty to. I mean, shouldn't that make it almost a slam dunk then that, uh, you know, he would be on the hook for those, those, those costs? It should. And if ICBC were acting reasonably in the litigation process, in this case and in any case, then it, it would absolutely not require them to file a defense like this. But the reality is that because this has become such a common practice for ICBC where they do it in every case, it's done without thinking. And I mean, I've even experienced it myself in an ICBC case I was involved in where I was in an accident on my way to court. It wasn't my fault, but ICBC claims that I was driving drunk and that's why the accident happened, even though I'm a lawyer on my way to court when I get hit by another vehicle. Yeah, that'd be uh, that'd be something else if that were the case. If you were driving drunk <laughs> to court to to defend these kinds of situations, that'd be uh, almost a little bit ironic, I suppose. Um, Kyla, I mean, with that being said, I mean, how does this kind of uh, change, or or how does this uh, what does this do for you in terms of how you approach these kinds of cases? Since, since this seems to be just the the automatic thing that is done, they just blame the victim initially and then kind of go through the process from there. Does that change the way you approach these kinds of cases as a defense lawyer? Oh, absolutely. Anytime somebody is dealing with an ICBC case where they've been told uh, that they're responsible for the accident that they've suffered injuries in, they have to change their entire litigation strategy. And this is part of what's so offensive about this. You know, we've heard endless reports over the last two years about what a dire financial situation ICBC is in. And a lot of blame has been put on defense lawyers for how they deal with their clients and how um, how personal injury lawyers try and uh, try and strategize their litigation that increases costs. 
But the reality is that a lot of what lawyers are doing in response to these claims is because of the positions that ICBC's taken. Um, when they take positions saying that a stop sign isn't on a road, even though everybody knows that there's a stop sign there. When they say that uh, somebody who died in a collision caused the collision themselves, it costs more money because all of that has to be litigated. Rather than taking a reasonable position and going, well, we know what the road looks like, we know where the stop signs are, we know what the road features are, we know who's responsible in a case where somebody pleads guilty to a criminal offense. We don't need to unnecessarily prolong and increase the expense of litigation. And I think it's time for ICBC to take a hard look at how they're doing business because that is increasing the cost uh, all over uh, at ICBC. Yeah, and I think it's cases like this that will kind of help raise the profile and maybe, maybe, just maybe the, the public will make for more more of a push to see some of the changes in the way these kinds of cases are dealt with because uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't feel like it starts with them right it starts with uh, the grassroots people that are going to have to kind of make the call to see these kinds of changes so people like the Beckett family don't have to go through this process when they are grieving the death of their of their loved one and uh, you know it's kind of a, a terrible situation to have to go through fighting for this kind of um, you know apology that I ICBC eventually did give so yeah late last week I mean ICBC apologized for how they handled this case I mean how often does that happen do you ever see the the insurance company apologize for the way that they went about dealing with these kinds of situations this is like it seems uh, odd almost that they would apologize not that it wasn't warranted but just uh, you know how often are you seeing uh, you know cases that start out this way they're blaming a victim and then eventually you know years later they apologize for how they handled it Usually you never get the apology. The only reason, and, and maybe this is cynical, but the only reason there was the apology in this case was because everybody in in the, the province knows what happened in this case. Everybody knows that Constable Beckett was doing what she needed to do as part of her duty to try and stop a dangerous driver who was posing a risk to the public, and she lost her life protecting the public from that. And that's why they were forced into a position where they had to apologize. But if this was anybody else in any other case, there would be no apology. There would be an amendment, maybe after an application in court to require them to amend the pleadings, maybe after they, you know, back and forth between lawyers to require them to amend the litigation. But there would never have been an apology if it weren't this case. Yeah, that's... Um I guess that's just the harsh reality of, of kind of how we live. If it wasn't such a high-profile situation, then, uh, yeah, we wouldn't hear the the, uh, the, the trickle-down as a result and the eventual apology that was given. I'm here with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Now, uh, we do want to switch to a, a bit of a different uh, scenario here, one where a cop maybe uh, did something that uh, was, well, I found uh, very odd, and uh, I'm sure you did as well. Uh, there was this case out of Nelson uh, Police where uh, a uh, a mother called her son, her 22-year-old son, to pick her up from a Christmas party to drive her home. Now, her son apparently had an N license. Now, uh, I guess that story has also been corrected to say that the Nelson police say an L license, which I guess changes things slightly. But nonetheless, uh, I still find it weird that this mother was given a 90-day roadside prohibition for being impaired in the passenger seat. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever in your life seen the fact that someone who is a passenger in a vehicle somehow basically gets uh, a DUI as a result of being too close to a steering wheel, I guess, was the argument that was made here? This is the only, the second time I've seen this happen in my career. The first time involved a grandfather with his grandson who had his L, who was being his designated driver. The police gave the grandfather a driving prohibition. That was later reversed, and um, he actually sued the police as a result of uh, the actions that they took in that case. 
In this case, as I understand, the police have now taken steps again to cancel the prohibition to release the vehicle without charge to the family um, and have apologized for overarching uh, conduct on their part. Um, but, but I think this is indicative of a real lack of education that police have about what the requirements are for supervisors when somebody has their L and whether or not those supervisors have to be sober. Yeah, so how, how do you understand the law in that situation? Does the, uh, the, the supervisor, the person over 25 in the car who's in the passenger seat, who is, you know, essentially, I guess, uh, responsible for the driver in that case, uh, are they allowed to be intoxicated or do they have to be sober? How do you understand the rules around that? The rule is in British Columbia that as long as they are over the age of 25 and possess a valid driver's license and sit in the passenger seat of the vehicle, doesn't matter whether they're sober, doesn't matter whether they're, they're asleep or awake, as long as they're physically present in that seat and they meet those two age and license criteria, that's all that's necessary. And BC is actually different than every other province in Canada where the supervisor does have to be sober, does have to be in a position where they'd be capable of taking over driving if something happened that required them to do so. Um, and it might be time for BC to amend the legislation to bring it up to speed with everything else, because it does make sense that if you're supervising somebody who's an inexperienced driver, you should be in a position to be able to drive if necessary. But that's not currently the law in British Columbia. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm not from uh, BC originally. So yeah, in my experience, when I was uh, had my learners, I had to have someone who was, uh, you know, in the passenger seat who was over the age of 25 i believe they needed 10 years of driving experience in ontario and um they had to be sober but that's not the case here that's that's interesting and uh, do you have any idea why it's taken so long to to kind of uh, you know you know b uh, bring their laws up to speed i mean it just seems like a natural thing that like you would mention that the, the person who is responsible for the driver should have to be sober in case there is a need that they should have to jump behind the wheel uh it just seems bizarre do you think that's something that we might see here in the near future I think it is. I think, you know, the attention that's been paid to this case might um, inspire the government to craft legislation that requires that the, the supervisor be sober. It makes sense. But it also makes sense in some respects that they don't have to be because you have situations like this where there's there's a, a risk that if they're not sober, they're going to get behind the wheel um, rather than have the, the sober person drive even if they have less experience. And if you balance the risk, the less experienced driver poses much less of a risk on the roadway in an ordinary driving situation than an intoxicated person does in any driving situation. So if you really weigh the potential danger against one another, it's better to have the inexperienced driver driving the vehicle than to have an intoxicated person doing it. Absolutely. I think uh, you won't have any arguments from too many people about that one. And uh, maybe when we see, uh, you know, the cases like this that do get the public attention they've gotten so far that uh, we will see, well, you said that it's only been two cases that you can recall where a passenger has been given this kind of prohibition, but hopefully we don't see any more of that, especially right now on the holiday season, because I'm sure there's a lot of people looking for some sober rides home and, and their kids with a learner's license might be one of those ways to get there. But uh, we'll see. Thanks so much for doing this, Kyla. Always love talking to you. Thank you. Have a nice day. You as well. That was Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be talking about weather. Yes, what are the top 10 weather stories here in Canada for 2019? Well, I'll be joined by Environment Canada's Chief Climatologist, David Phillips, after the break. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas.
Hello and welcome back to the show here on Monday, December the 23rd. Uh, as it feels to be the case every year, there were a number of odd weather events that took place across Canada and across the world here this year. Environment Canada is out with its top 10 list of weird weather events in the country for 2019, and it includes an array of events from cold snaps to windstorms to entire seasons having seemingly been missed. I'm joined now by Environment and Climate Change Canada's chief climatologist, David Phillips. David, thanks so much for joining me. Jeff, thank you for having me aboard to review uh, what Canadians always like to talk about. At this time of the year, we, we talk about the big sports stories, the big news stories, but hey, where weather is so important to Canadians, we like to also relive some of the misery, hardship, and misfortune. Not a lot of good news in this uh, list, uh, uh, Jeff, but uh, hey, it's uh, moments where we sometimes forget, but hey, we've had to endure a lot, but you're right, around the world, they've they've also had to deal with uh, with weather in a, an extreme kind of way. Yeah, I guess good weather isn't really overly exciting to talk about, right? It's this uh, extreme <laughs> stuff that's interesting. Jeff, I always say to people, you know, uh, this is the worst dress list, not the best dress <laughs> list. You know, and people get so upset. They'll say, well, you know, we how come you didn't include our big weather event in from our community? and Or else you put us number eight and we were number two. And I said, oh, no, you know, this is good news not to be on this list. <laughs> now, um, yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting way to look at it, right? You're not on the list. Yes. That's a good thing. Um, before right. we get right into the list, I did want to just kind of get an overall question in here, just sort of how much much we are seeing uh, the weather and, and just change as a result of, you know, climate change and human-induced climate change. I mean, you know, when you're putting this list together, you've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, yeah. Just when you look at how the, the weather events are that you put on this list compared to, say, stuff you would have put together 10, maybe even 20 years ago, I mean, yeah. just how are you seeing that effect of climate change result in just some a, a, a lot different events making these kinds of lists? And I think next year, it'll be the, I, I began this in 1996, and this next year will be the 25th year. And I thought, well, you know, maybe that would be a good time to review uh, over the past 25 years. And if I see any, as you're suggesting, any hint or any trend to, to this, because, you know, Jeff, it is a subjective list. I mean, no, no committee puts this together. They'd still be working on it. But I have to sort of take the, I look at 100 stories in a year, and I just boil them down. I say, okay, which ones had the greatest impact? Maybe the most meteorological interest? What had the most legs? What what did people seem to talk about so much for just uh, day after day, week after week? And so I admit, first to admit, that it's not anything that I look at economically necessarily uh, to put it to, to, to uh, together. But I've noticed over the years that uh, clearly, I mean, the length, it's got longer. I mean, there's no area where people are sort of um, left out of the cold. Everyone has had their cross to bear with regards to that. For example, this year in British Columbia, I would say it's generally quiet compared to, to what we've seen in other years. The last two years was led by the terrible forest fires mm -hmm. in, in 2017, 2018, and my gosh, it was, uh, it was rather quiet compared to, to those years this year. So not a lot of uh, floods. We've seen that in the past or major, major events. So my sense is it balances out. But what I've seen, I think, a couple of things. First of all, the greater extremes. You know, we're seeing a storm seem to be stormier, you know, more intense. You know, it's not different weather, though, Jeff. It's not as if we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, tornadoes in January in Kamloops and, and sandstorms in Vancouver in, uh, in, in October. No, 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 it's not that. I wish it was, and we'd have this thing, oh, there'd 
be no doubt. But it's the same old weather. It's just that it's ramped up a bit. It just seems more, like it's almost like weather on steroids in a way. It's just more energy, more frequency, more intensity, uh, out of season, out of place. And the other thing that I think is noticeable is that the variability. You know, it's just this thing called normal weather doesn't seem to occur anymore. I saw some instances this year, for example, where farmers dealt with the driest growing season and the wettest growing season in the same growing season. I mean, that is just something you don't see in the, in the past. And so it, it's, that's the kind of thing, it's almost you can't figure it out. You know, when you average all the precipitation, it came out to be normal, but you didn't live it, you say. And so I think those are the two things, the greater extremes and the greater variability, the more impactfulness of, of weather, that seems to be the case. I'll, I'll make one uh, counter argument then, because you said it's not necessarily different weather that you're seeing, but uh, in one of the, the lists on the story, number five, record heat continues in the Arctic. There was one thing on there that kind of caught my attention as well, a tornado near Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories. I mean, that's not you know, something you really see, right? Exactly. And that's a good point you raise. I mean, if, if you look at the Arctic, I mean, that is number five on my list. And, you know, how many different ways can you say the big heat leads to the big melt? I mean, my gosh, we're seeing that for the last several decades. And, uh, and, and really, that's alarming because what we're seeing is just a total transformation of the climate in that area. But you're right, Jeff. I mean, what, what really caught my attention this year is not just the fact that they're seeing the southern, the southern warmth come northward and, and melting the ice and thawing the ground and, and dis the snow disappearing before your eyes, but they saw weather. You know, that tornado, I mean, that's never, that's r rare that you see a tornado uh, in the north. You saw a heat wave. I mean, there, was, there were hotter temperatures in, in, in Alert, which is the most northerly place in the world it's inhabited, uh, warmer there than in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, and you saw thunder and lightning near within sight of the North Pole. You saw uh, forest fires that you could see the smoke from, well, not forest fires, they were, they were peat fires, they, mm -hmm. were, they were fires, they could see the smoke from satellites. So you're right, I think what, was, what attracted me about that one was the fact that, wow, it's not just the fact that it's, it's, uh, we're not as white and cold in the north as we once were, we're also seeing the weather change for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's some uh, alarming stuff, I would think. I mean, uh, we talk about yeah. climate change all the time, and that's just one uh, big piece of evidence to show that it is really, uh, really happening. Well, the other thing about that, Jeff, that's sort of interesting, you know, we think that, and Southerners think, well, that's just the northern thing, that's the, you know, uh, Inuit thing, you know, or a Denny thing. Uh, no, I mean, when we change the fundamental climate control of the of the world, which is the Arctic temperatures, then the weather changes elsewhere. So it is really a Kamloops thing, because when you're changing the, the basic control, then your weather itself is going to be different than it has been. So I think we're all connected, you know, this is, this is all related to, it's not just something occurring outside of the world and, and we're not impinged by it, we are. I mean, it's, it's, it's all connected because, hey, the weather is connected, it knows no boundaries, and, uh, and so things that are happening now uh, could very well be because of things happening around the world. Uh, I'm joined now by Environment and Climate Change Canada's Chief Climatologist, Dave Phillips. Um, what, what was the one big story for you? I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily a list of 1 to 10 in rankings. I know, like, number one on your list was the uh, Ottawa River flooding that we saw here over the yeah. course of the spring. The one that's, for me, that I kind of remember the most, and this is because I'm a big Halloween guy, was uh, in Quebec they actually postponed Halloween as a result of the storms there. Uh, what was sort of, like, number one for you on the list of interesting topics? Was there one that stood out above the rest? Well, they are 
ranked by order, but, you know, it's a good point you raised because, you know, there's no sort of one factor that sort of, uh, not, it was an economic uh, loss. Uh, uh, it probably would have been that Halloween storm or that, that um, the Dorian, the, uh, the terrible um, hurricane. I look at it as the disruption, the inconvenience that it causes, and not deaths. You know, the thing is, Jeff, it's interesting that we're very fortunate in this country that weather doesn't kill people like it does in other parts of the world. And I think because we have a good weather service, people are respectful of weather. We always have a good, we have a good emergency measures. People jump in there and try to bring people back to order and to, to normalcy. And I think that really helps us. The same weather in another part of the world would, would take a really big toll on people from both a mortality and a morbidity kind of way. I think the flooding was, in, in a way, Jeff, it was because it was the second one in three years. The same people had been uh, taken out of their homes, suffered property losses, and they were it was almost a psychological downer. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was there were two deaths in that flooding, and but there was a lot of angst, a lot of people saying, "Oh, why me?" Like you know, and so I think that from that point of view, it was unprecedented. 120 years, the water levels have never been higher, and it was the longest flood on record. So I think that from many points of view, when I look at it, it it had all the elements of a of a nasty one, and certainly that Halloween storm. I mean, it affected millions of children. I mean, my gosh. I mean, to them, it was the wicked weather witch that stole Halloween yeah. from them. And 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 of course, the there were eleven communities in Quebec that said, "Well, all right, we're going to postpone Halloween from October the thirty first to November first. Okay, kids didn't get soaked, but they got blown around. <laughs> that it really spoiled it. So I think from one that has legs and people most saying, "Oh my gosh, what a lousy year." That was certainly one that um, that was was at the at the top. And I think the the, the hurricanes, the Dorian. I think we got touched by uh, certainly not in uh, British Columbia. Rarely do you see a, a hurricane. You might get the remnants of a typhoon or something. The water is just too cold to sustain that. But we saw the damage in the, in the Bahamas. I mean, it just annihilated that country, uh, Dorian. And yet it still had a lot of energy coming into New Br- uh, to uh, uh, Nova Scotia. It over the warmer water, it stayed together. It didn't just sort of rip apart, and uh, and it was in fact for them the uh, in terms of public infrastructure. There's never been this is a, this is a province of snowstorms, and uh, and they really uh, clearly got uh, uh, really not annihilated, but but clearly a lot of damage for public infrastructure from that uh, heavy rains and, and strong winds. Yeah, and and like you had mentioned off the top there with uh, the the flooding in the Ottawa River, I'm sure come the springtime there's going to be a lot of uh, nervous people uh, that well, that could happen again, right? Exactly. I mean, that's the point. I mean, right now it's looking better. You all, there's about seven or eight different factors that come together to tell you it's going to be a, a real flood season or not. And uh, right now it's better than it was last year. But, hey, there's still a lot of, uh, of time. And, and, and I remember the other one that I, I think is kind of interesting is the February, the brutal cold in February. And this is something you've experienced in, in Kamloops. I mean, we saw the temperature in Kamloops for, for February was the average temperature turned out to be about minus nine. Now, that is if you average all the highs of the lows, minus nine. doesn't seem too bad, but the average temperature is really above freezing. It's about 0.1. So that was probably one of the coldest Februarys on record, and it went from, from British Columbia right through to the upper Great Lakes, and it really defined the winter. I mean, people were saying, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, there's not a melting day found in, in Western Canada, and, uh, and it was just, it made the, the 
shortest month, the longest month. And people, I mean, even though, I mean, it was kind of a coolish kind of summer, a winter, it wasn't the coldest on record, but February was. It was all the misery seemed packed into about 28 days, and then it just went on for uh, forever, for sure. Yep, yeah, I can recall, and uh, I'm hoping we don't deal with it again this February. No, I'd like to be more, that, more comfortable than that. Exactly. That polar vortex, that absolutely, instead of El Nino, which is supposed to be milder, we got the polar vortex, and it really, really did, uh, even fans of winter were saying, enough's enough. <laughs> I, it, it's just gone on too long. For sure. Well, Dave, uh, I'm sure we could talk about this for another half an hour, but unfortunately uh, we are out of time. But thanks yeah. so much for uh, doing this. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you, Jeff, for your interest. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. That was Environment and Climate Change Canada's Chief Climatologist, Dave Phillips, talking about the top 10 weather stories here of 2019. If you want to get more of an in-depth read on uh, what he put together here, you can just uh, give a quick Google search there, Environment Canada, Top 10 Stories 2019. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good read. I'd recommend doing so. There's some interesting stuff in there, and we did not get to all of it, like I said. So uh, I, I would recommend giving it a chat or giving it a quick read and, and learning a little bit more about what happened in 2019. And maybe that's a brief window into what we can expect in 2020 and onward if we can expect more of these crazy weather stories moving forward i'm sure we can um, and that's just a, a snapshot of some possibilities and what we might see uh, as time moves on uh, coming up after the break most people out there are going to get a much deserved holiday break with christmas season here upon us that provides a good opportunity to look at the issue of employee burnout for those who are managing a team or employing individuals it might be a good idea to pay a little extra attention to the issue of employee burnout and i'll be speaking more about this with Dr. Jeff Soloway from MindWell after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. It is Monday the 23rd. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Jeff Andrea Show here as we get set for Christmas just a couple of days away. Uh, burnout. Burnout. It's characterized by emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness in the workplace. Employee burnout, of course, is what I'm talking about. And by chronic negative responses to stressful workplace conditions. Well, not considered a mental illness, burnout can be considered a mental health issue. And when we're talking about the workplace, it can, of course, have some serious consequences on when it comes to productivity and morale. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Dr. Jeff Soloway from MindWell. Jeff, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so it is the end of the year, and, and most people are getting ready for a, a nice couple of days off, hopefully, to rest and relax and enjoy some time with family and friends. But, um, you know, just how critical is the issue of employee burnout when talking about things like productivity? I mean, we're looking ahead to a new year, new work year here in 2020. Um, what are some things that employers should be mindful of to make sure that their employees are, you know, are, are feeling good when it comes to their mental health and able to perform well? Yeah, well, burnouts, uh, it is indeed an important topic and an issue and classified uh, as an occupational phenomenon by the World Health Organization, and it really hits everybody in an organization. Uh, hits the individuals, uh, it hits the teams that those individuals are working within, and it, and it affects the organization as a whole. So uh, it really uh, it impacts everyone, and, um, and that means that, you know, everybody needs has a has a role to play, and so if you're on the 
if you're on the manager side, I think there's a lot that managers and leaders can do in the workplace to um, look at all these different uh, levels, at the individual level, supporting the individual, recognizing um, how they're doing. And, and that's that's a big step is just looking at your team and seeing who's on your team, how are they doing, and, and asking, them, asking them that and really being there to listen to see what they're saying because often we miss, we're just not, we're moving around so quickly that we miss what uh, the cues that individuals are, are dropping uh, that can show us that there might be something, uh, a problem arising. Because burnout doesn't happen overnight. This is a, a chronic condition uh, in response to, to stress. So that's at the individual level. But it's important not to just make burnout uh, just sit at the individual level. It's not just uh, in the hands uh, of that person, They're, the organization has a role to play in this. And so as a leader uh, reflecting on burnout in the workplace, it's like, well, what systems are in place um, in the context of the workplace that might be contributing to an employee employee's stress? Uh, what kind of procedures are they following? You know, how many emails, you know, what are the expectations around workload and, and when they're supposed to get that work done and different policies in place. So there's a lot of different factors that uh, we can take responsibility of that uh, we need to support the individual and we also need to look at the organization. So when talking about how a good manager can help prevent employee burnout, I mean, you mentioned a number of steps in there. Do you think that communication might be the most important there to make sure you are talking with your employers to know how they're feeling? And then, you know, I mean, you can't do anything to help someone if you don't know that, you know, they need help in the first place, right? Absolutely. There's, uh, there's that relationship building. And as a good leader, I think you need to have your finger on the pulse of that. Um, and have a finger on the pulse of your teams uh, and knowing uh, how people are, are working together and how they, they feel working together. And that's a big part of uh, being a good leader. It's developing the, the right culture in your team and how people relate to one another, uh, how they trust one another, their openness uh, with one another. And that's a, that's a huge part to it. Um, that, a, that a leader needs to, to do that, you know, we don't think, we don't think about that as the role of the leader, um, but that's actually a huge part to uh, engaging and creating the, the right culture and culture in an individual team and culture also at an organizational level. That's kind of the higher maybe executive and leaders of the, of the organization that they need to consider, like what kind of culture is, is embedded within this company and, and how does that affect the people working on the front lines? Yeah, and, and speaking of culture and sort of how we react to, to issues around mental health, I mean, we have seen a decline in the last number of years around the stigma that, that goes with mental health. I mean, do you think that, you know, that has helped people avoid some of this employee burnout that we're talking about? I mean, the fact that people are more willing to talk about their mental health, maybe more willing to take a mental health day if they need to than they would have been, uh, you know, willing to do in the past. I mean, do you, does that contribute to the well-being of employees? Well, I think it, it, it can, what contributes to the well-being of employees is, yes, people being more open and willing to say, I need some support because there are things that could be done um, uh, when we're not feeling well. And when we get the resources and we get support, uh, it helps. And that uh, we don't have to walk around maybe feeling burnt out, uh, feeling blue, feeling anxious. Um, there are things that we can do. Sometimes there's small things that we can do uh, in our daily life that will actually make us feel better. And sometimes that's that's really it sounds simple, but it when we're when we're in it, 
it, it does, it's not so simple. And so you're right, being able to talk about it and having somebody there to actually hear us is a huge step for us to actually get some support uh, and some, some guidance and uh, some help that we need. Uh, Jeff, we're almost out of time here, but I did want to get this last question in. So how will the workplace kind of be changing in 2020 and beyond in terms of mental health and mindfulness in the workplace? I mean, what are we looking forward to in terms of some changes in that? Well, I think uh, we've we've talked about it a little bit in terms of awareness. I think that we are, I think we're moving to a place where we want to provide our employees and workplaces with the skills of mental health. And that's a really, that's the next step. You talked about reducing the stigma. Now we're at a place where we can provide people with the skills of mental health. And, um, you know, there's different uh, different activities. Mindfulness is one. MindWell, that's what we focus on is a skill of mental health, learning how to focus our attention, be in the present moment through an exercise. It's mental exercise that we can do on a daily basis that helps us be more focused. Uh, so these are the types of things that leaders, that organizations um, can instill within within um, their companies that start to develop the skills so that people have these proactive coping habits, proactive coping habits uh, for responding to stress. And that helps us. Life is stressful, but it's how we respond to stress. What kind of positive mm-hmm. coping habits we have in our life will, will help us elevate above it. Right on, Jeff. Well, definitely some good information there that people should be paying attention to and making sure they take care of their employees in order to increase productivity and have a good workplace. I think it's very important. So thank you so much for coming on and speaking to this issue, and uh, hopefully we can uh, connect again in the future. Appreciate that, Jeff. Thank you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. That was Dr. Jeffrey Soloway from MindWell talking about employee burnout and how we can uh, help prevent that here in the future. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.